0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome uh, to the Cato Institute. My name is Simon Lester. I am the Associate Director of the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. And I have with me up on on stage the the two people who are going to uh, provide the most uh, content and entertainment tonight, uh, today. We have, uh, first, Dr. Uh, Weiwan Zhao, uh, the University of New South Wales, uh, Sydney, Australia. He's a senior lecturer there. Um, he is our guest of honor. We'll be talking about his book, which I'll hold up, China's Implementation of the Rulings of the World Trade Organization. Thank you to, to Wei Wan for making this long trip. I've made the trip from, uh, to and from Australia several times. It's very tiring. I, I spoke to him a bit yesterday. Uh, he, he seemed like he had energy. Um, but if you, if you need to just rest your eyes for a little bit, we'll, we'll all understand. And then we also have uh, Mr. Jim Backus, uh, who has a long and illustrious career. Um, I will just give you the highlights where we'd be here all day. He is a, he's a former member of Congress from Florida. He's a founding member of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. He's been the head of a major law firm, currently a professor at the University of Central Florida, and most importantly, an adjunct fellow here at the Cato Institute. So welcome to, to Jim as well. Um, let me start out by saying that I have never considered myself to be a China expert or even a US-China trade relations expert. Uh, until a couple of years ago, I'd never written anything about it. Uh, I left it, it to, to the issue to others. It was all a mystery to me. But then I started talking to my, my colleague, Wan Zhu, in the audience about this. And uh, we wrote a few pieces. We wrote some blog posts, some op-eds, some short papers, made some suggestions for how the US-China relationship could be improved. And as we were doing that, the issue took off. Uh, Suddenly, uh, this was the big trade issue out there. Um, It seems to me, I think it's fair to say, that US-China relations will be perhaps the defining issue in US trade policy for for years to come, uh, at least in the top two, uh, regardless of who is president. It's not just an issue of President Trump. It's it's just sort of the the US is really focused on, on, on China. Everybody in the US is focused on China right now. This relationship has a lot of different elements to it, uh, and unfortunately, we're not going to get to all of them today. Um, There are are battles over markets for new technology, the use of data, spying, surveillance, hacking. These are all interesting issues, but there's only so much time. What we're going to focus on today is China's membership in the World Trade Organization. In particular, its compliance with WTO dispute settlement rulings, and then uh, its compliance with its obligations more broadly. there's a narrative that has emerged uh, that admitting China into the WTO, either on the the terms that that were used or on any terms at all, uh, was a mistake, in part because the view is China can't be trusted to follow the rules. And what we hope to do today is explore that claim by, by providing an examination of China's implementation of WTO dispute settlement rulings and its compliance more generally. Wei Wan's book uh, is uh, the most detailed examination of this issue to date. Um, So he's well suited to comment on this issue. Now, prior to his book, uh, Jim and and Juan and I had written a a paper uh, on on very similar issues. Um, And so we had, at one point, the most extensive uh, examination of this. But records are meant to be broken. uh, And we were happy to hear uh, about Wei Wan's book, Uh, Scholarship is Not a Competition. And so what what we're going to do now, uh, first, I'm going to uh, turn to to Wei Wan to just uh, talk about the core finding of his book. And then Jim will provide some comments. And then uh, I'm going to ask him some questions. We'll have a bit of discussion. And then we will have some time to take questions from the audience as well. So with that, uh, I'll turn it over to Wei Wan. You can stand up here. You can sit there, whatever you uh, feel most comfortable with. I'll try there first. OK. All right, thanks, Simon, for um,
1: inviting me and also uh, for the kind introduction. now, you may be wondering why I'm looking at my phone. It's not particularly I care about the time, but I just couldn't find my iPad. So <laughs> I'm using my phone to look at my notes. Um, not particularly because I need the notes, but some of the numbers I can't actually remember, but which I want to share with you today. Um, so, so the book, um, the completion of the book dragged for about a couple of years. Um, but the issue we're asking, or the question we're asking today, remains very alive which is, does China comply with the, the rulings or the rules of the WTO? Um, that question has many aspects into it, and the answer to, that quest- to, to those questions or the different aspects might differ um, depending on which aspect you're looking at it. So, um, there are two particular aspects that we're going to discuss today, as Simon alluded to you. One is whether China complies with the WTO obligations in general. And the second one is whether China complies with the WTO rulings against it when China lost their case. So um, the book is focusing on the second question, the secondary compliance, if you like. But we're going to talk about both of the questions today, maybe in the Q&A session. Um, but let me just focus on the first question by now, um, the, 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 the compliance with the WTO rulings. Um, The book was completed around the same time last year. By the time, there were about 43 disputes against China uh, as a respondent involving 30 matters. Now, since then, there has been one more dispute, I think. And then there is, uh, among the 30 disputes, China has been Respond and lose, lost all of the, most of the cases um, in twelve disputes, and in ten disputes, China chose to, comp, uh, to to reach a mutually agreed solution with the complainants, which means that China either modifies or um, removes the mayor's concerns without going through the adjudication process. Within the twelve disputes that China lost the WTO case, and has to implement. China implemented almost in all cases. There was only one case where China failed to to implement completely. Now, let me be clear. The cases may involve many, many aspects, many, many issues there, and the findings of the WTO tribunals could involve Different, different issues or different findings or violations. China's compliance has been very well, because China complied in almost all cases, except for one. Now, the two issues, one in relation to the restriction on trading rights um, in relation to films. China reached a compensation deal with the US um, basically by providing more market access to the US in exchange for non-compliance. The second aspect, in the same case, which is the China publication's the audiovisual products case, China actually removed the prohibition in relation to the right for foreign invested uh, enterprises to run network music activities. But after that, China did not publish any law or regulation for foreign invested enterprises to follow in applying for approval to run such businesses. So that was considered as a partial compliance. But only in those two issues, aspects, that China failed to comply. In all of the other cases involving many, many other issues, China complied completely. When I say China complies completely, there is another nuanced issue we need to bring up, which is um, treat remedy cases. Now, in treat remedy cases, China's compliance is a little bit more trickier because China's approach has been to um, reinvestigate the same matter after adverse WTO ruling. That means that the final outcome of the reinvestigation could either be the removal of the existing duties or continuation of the existing duties at the same or modified rates. Now, we can come back to these points in the q and session, but the general point I want to make is that despite that, um, compliance issues in treat remedy cases is not a China-specific issue. If you want to take a, an example of Azerine cases um, and also other treat remedy cases, um, you can see the issue is general, uh, generally applicable to all WTO member, members, and especially the major users of treat remedies. So I think the overall conclusion is that China has maintained a very well record, very good record of compliance. I think from my, from my comparison, um, I haven't done a comparison in the book, but the comparison uh, with the U.S. records, the EU records, China has maintained a better record of compliance. And also consider the fact that China has, been sub- has not been subject to any request for authorization for retaliation in the system, So, which again indicates that China has maintained a quality uh, compliance in most of the cases. Now, what is the policy implication from that? The policy implication is that the WTO dispute settlement mechanism has been effective in reducing China to make changes. That is one of the um, reasons I think that the current administration has been wrong in um, at least diminishing the function and effectiveness of the system. What WTO members should continue to do is to use the system effectively to continue to push China to make necessary changes in policy making and regulation. So that is the the main policy um, implications I think that I need to uh, emphasize on. Um, Having said that, China has many issues after compliance in individual cases. Now, these issues, I just mentioned two major ones. I I think it's quite important. The first one is implementation and transparency, which means that once you have a revised law in China in compliance with WTO rulings, the implementation process um, must be monitored effectively and continuously. Now, to be able to monitor it, we need to have a transparency system in China to really say whether at both the central and local levels, China has implemented the revised law in an effective way, that has been missing, and that 's one of the major issues I think uh, currently we 're still having um, in relation to china 's post compliance activities. The second one is what we um, what I termed as the repetitive violation it 's really concerns about um, the new development of regulation in China to deal with the same regulatory objectives. Um, in those areas, China may use similar measures for the same purpose, consider the export restrictions on raw materials and rare earths. Um, in these cases, the repetitive violation is likely because it's very similar measures achieve, trying in pursuit of the uh, very similar objectives uh, just after a finding of violation by WTO tribunals. But again, that is not a China-specific issue. All of the WTO members can use the weakness of the system, which is, as as Jim and uh, Simon have written a paper about it, it's a lengthy litigation and compliance process, which provides significant gap for temporary breaches. And one of the um, solutions, as Jim and Simon um, argue for, is to shorten the process and simplify the whole process so that you have a shorter time um, for for any potential temporary breach. Another solution, as I would argue, but has been talked about for a long time, is to introduce retrospective remedies. Having said that, I think one last thing I want to mention is we need to be careful when we assess, when we assess the, uh, objectively whether any country complies with the WTO rulings. The dispute settlement mechanism itself has its limits. So in individual cases, the rulings will be based on the issues brought by a complainant. And the final ruling, even though you may be overall in favor of a complainant, it may have more limited effects um, because you may not be fully supportive um, of the complainants. So we need to really look at the specific aspects of a violation found by the WTO tribunals to, to, to be able to measure compliance objectively. But that also shows uh, the, limit, the limitation of the dispute settlement mechanism itself. Uh, but despite that limitation, I think um, the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism has been very effective in inducing China um, in complying with the WTO rulings to make changes. If you ask the Chinese official, as I did, um, they will tell you that one of the most confident things that the government Um, will tell you about their performance in the WTO in general is compliance with the rulings. And that has been treated as a priority by the government at least um, in the past past, um, 18 years. So I think again maintaining a functional dispute settlement mechanism is the way to deal with China. Um, If we are going to deal with any China-specific challenges. In the future, um, we need to maintain a functional dispute settlement mechanism, and we should continue to support um, the panel review mechanism, as well as the WTO or the multilateral training system in general. I will stop there and we'll come back to Q&A. Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you, Simon, and, and thank you all. Uh, I want to uh, welcome Professor Chow to the United States. It's, it's too bad in his brief visit from Australia, he won't be able to see beyond the Beltway. But uh, here at Cato, we try to see beyond the Beltway and looking at the United States and uh, all that we do. Uh, it was my pleasure to be with him uh, in Sydney, recently on my uh, uh, globe-trotting, whistle-stop tour of the world in defense of the international rule of law and trade. Um, We're doing the best we can. Um, I'd like to make three points. Uh, First, um, he's right. Uh, His his book clearly makes the case that uh, China has a solid record of compliance with adverse WTO rulings. Indeed, a better record than that of the United States. Uh, Second, nevertheless, uh, there are many Chinese uh, trade practices with which the United States and other WTO members are rightly concerned. And third, uh, contrary to what you've heard from uh, the uh, current administration in the United States, it is possible Uh, to uh, resolve uh, many of our concerns about China's trade practices within the framework legally of the WTO. Uh, On the first point, uh, I would simply urge you to uh, uh, purchase and read Professor Zhao's book. It goes case by case in explaining compliance, uh, even in the one instances in which he's mentioned that uh, 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 he's concluded there was less than compliance. Uh, well, there was full compliance in the sense that uh, what China did was agreed by the complainants. Uh, in in that case, uh, those two cases, the United States. Uh, that seems to me to be a positive resolution uh, to a dispute, which is the goal of the dispute settlement system. Um, why has China complied with these rulings? Um, I'm just back from several weeks in China and uh, everywhere I went uh, from everyone who spoke there was a full-throated and unanimous support for uh, multilateralism and trade and for uh, upholding, supporting, defending, and uh, by all means perpetuating the WTO dispute settlement system. I think the answer is that China understands the importance of the WTO to China. Where would China be without membership in the WTO? Without membership in the WTO, first, China wouldn't have the benefit of all the accumulation of decades of uh, trade concessions that other countries have made uh, to each other and multilaterally through operation of the most favored nation rule. um, That's a considerable benefit to any member of the WTO. But also, if China were not a member of the WTO, every other member of the WTO, all 163 countries, would be free to discriminate against Chinese trade in whatever way they wished, with impunity and with no legal redress. Think what would have happened with the emergence of China economically since the turn of this century if China had not become a member of the WTO in 2001. We would have been in a full-blown global trade war long before now. So China understands this, and therefore China values uh, a dispute settlement, and therefore China makes it a point internally uh, in virtually every respect of making certain that it does all it can to comply with WTO rulings when they go against China. The evidence of that is in Professor Zhao's book. In contrast, there is my country, the United States of America. I don't want to disillusion you But we've done a lot of foot dragging when it comes to complying with WTO rulings against us. This is especially so in trade remedies cases, uh, and especially so in a series of anti-dumping cases over a methodology that's used called zeroing, which uh, creates dumping when it doesn't exist and magnifies the amount of dumping where it does exist. Again and again and again and again, WTO jurists have been compelled to point out to the United States that this particular methodology is inconsistent with WTO obligations, and for those who say the obligation doesn't exist, and they're out there here in Washington, it's in Article 2.4 of the Anti-Dumping Agreement. We hear in Washington that, from our president that the United States has lost all its cases before the WTO truth of the matter is, the United States has won 91% of the cases it has brought to the WTO. It has lost the majority of the cases that have been brought against it in the WTO, as by the way, almost every other country has, because primarily it has insisted on acting inconsistently with WTO obligations in applying trade remedies. This is purely for political and protectionist reasons. It has nothing to do with the law. Why do we in the United States feel we can get away with this foot dragging? Why do we not seem to value this system in the way that others do? I think it's because we have forgotten why we helped lead the world to create the WTO in the first place over the course of more than half a century of building a multilateral trading system we don't realize that if we were not a member of the WTO, we would no longer have the benefit of those concessions unless we were granted them in some free trade agreement. And we Americans have fewer free trade agreements than many other countries do, including, for example, Mexico. And also, as would the Chinese, if they were not in the WTO, if we were not in the WTO, every other country in the world would be free to discriminate against our trade in goods and services however they chose, any day of the week. Yet these points are not made in our public debate in Washington, and they are not heard from either of our political parties, and they are not uh, made even in most of the uh, pages uh, or broadcasts of the media in our country. That's why China makes it a point to comply with adverse WTO rulings. Now, second, there are practices by China that give rise to serious concerns among not only the United States but other WTO members uh, about China's full compliance with its WTO obligations, just as China has some legitimate concerns with our compliance in the United States with our WTO obligations when it comes to Chinese trade and goods and services with us. These uh, violations take many forms. They can be domestic content requirements. They can be uh, mandated uh, transfers of technology they can be discriminatory forms of structuring different legal entities to pursue business and on and on and on. Uh, a lot of uh, these concerns uh, relate to China's effort to uh, climb up the ladder of comparative advantage by uh, investing in new technologies. There's absolutely no- nothing wrong with this, uh, but if it's done in a way that discriminates, against foreign providers of goods and services, then this raises serious legal issues in the WTO. Also, we Americans make the mistake of thinking that China is monolithic. It is not. The central government in Beijing can issue an order, but in some of the far-flung provinces, there might be some variations in how uh, that order is implemented. Uh, This is a challenge uh, for them in terms of fulfilling all their uh, WTO obligations. So we often see that things are happening in far-flung corners of China that may be inconsistent with what we're hearing from Beijing. And of course, China is accountable uh, as a member of the WTO for what is done throughout China by all the uh, provinces and uh, municipal governments uh, of China. The um, remedy here is, first of all, to resolve these issues in the WTO. It's been said, it's been written by some, that it was a mistake to bring China into the WTO, that WTO rules, uh, the GATT rules that preceded them were not written with the notion that uh, something like the current uh, governance of China uh, could fit into uh, the framework of the rule-based WTO multilateral trading system. This is simply not so. Uh, China's unique in many ways, but the notion that there are state trading enterprises that the notion that there is a state-driven industrial policy, the notion that there are state-owned enterprises that can distort trade, the notion that uh, there can be a uh, top-down government that imposes outcomes on the marketplace. Uh, None of this is new in the WTO. These things uh, occur in other countries. There's nothing that China's doing that's new in this respect. And there already are a number of WTO provisions that take into account these types of actions and that discipline them within the context of the WTO treaty. I won't go down the list now. Uh, The three of us have written uh, a paper for Cato on that. Uh, You can find it online. There are copies being circulated today. Uh, We have basically set out uh, an outline of a legal brief for the United States, and I would hope other countries, to bring uh, in the WTO dispute settlement system so that these issues could be resolved within the system. There are some issues that do not yet fall within the scope of the trading system. The answer there is not to take unilateral actions It's not to engage in bullying tactics. The answer there is to negotiate new rules that can then be upheld in the dispute settlement system. I think that's enough of a provocative uh, introduction from me. Again, I highly recommend that uh, you read Professor uh, Zhao's book. And uh, I'm very happy to see him uh, again here in my country, now that I've been in his. Thank you so much. Okay,
0: thank you, Jim. So so what I want to do now is just have a bit of a conversation uh, between the three of us. We will get to audience questions, so, so start thinking of them, but I want to I sort of dig a little deeper in, into some of these issues, um, some that were already raised a little bit and then some that, that haven't been yet. So, the first one, so, so Jim raised this point about, you know, why does China uh, comply with WTO rulings? And I, I want to, you know, highlight that because I, mean, I can imagine that many people in the United States would say, look, you know, China, as far as we know, everything we know about China is an authoritarian country, not known for its rule of law. Why is China complying with WTO rulings? That, that seems a little bit odd. Um, so, so I know, so Jim's already commented on that, but I want to give uh, Wei Wan a chance to, to talk about that issue. Why does China comply with WTO dispute settlement rulings?
1: Uh, thanks, Simon. Um, yes, so I, I also talked about these things in the book. Um, so after the discussing of the specific uh, violations findings in the book, I also talked about why China complies. Um, I think, first of all, one of the most important reasons that kind of, kind of uh, extending through all the cases the reputation costs that the government um, is very concerned about. Um, and secondly, I think in, in, in some of the cases, the measure itself was not necessary anymore after the years of litigation. And sometimes the, the, the dispute itself was brought only after several years of implementation of the measure. Um, and then there was another several years of litigation. And by the time of the, the, the China needs to comply with the WTO rulings that the measure may not be necessary anymore or it needs an upgrade. So, um that's another reason in some of the cases China complied. Another reason is that um sometimes China absolutely wants to use the WTO as an extra law force to push domestic reforms um. So, when they have, that's exactly what happened when China negotiated accession to the WTO, using the WTO as an external force to push domestic economic reforms. And in some of the cases, um, China wanted to do it, but the political will domestically um, is not strong enough for for the government to do that. Now, this goes back to uh, Simon's point about the um, authoritarian country, um, that the government can do whatever it wants, but frankly speaking, that even it's um, you know, in such, such a one-party model, I think it's still contestable in the way that the, the party or the government um, has a high priority to maintain political stability. They also face a lot of political pressure from businesses. And those goes into some of the non-compliance cases that China um, faced a lot of political pressure from for example, monopoly uh, companies domestically. So um, they do sometimes need external force to push through domestic reforms, and that happens in some of the cases as well. Another, I think it's a minor point, is how difficult the the implementation is. And sometimes, if it involves the legislation that needs to to go through all of the legislative process, then it could be difficult it's at least going to take a longer time for China to comply. But if it's a regulation that the state council can actually uh, make the amendments, then China can comply easily and quicker in that sense. So that is also one factor that uh, went into some of the cases in, in terms of China's compliance.
0: Okay, so WTO dispute settlement rulings is is one one issue. And, uh, when I'm on Twitter arguing about these things, and Jim has the good sense not to be on Twitter much, but but Wei Wan's on there and, and, you know, at he talk- all. <laughs> he, yeah, he sees me talking to people about it. So when I say, look, you know, China has complied pretty well with these WTO rulings, they say, well, you know, you're missing the point. There's sort of there's a broader problem of compliance, and, and we we all know that China just doesn't comply with his obligations, and I, I have trouble with. Uh, you know, assessing that. Um, you know, how do we uh, empirically measure all of a country's obligations and all of its actions, and sort of you know decide, you know, determine in, in, in relative terms whether you know how well China is complying, how well the U.S. is complying, how well the EU is complying? Um, so, so, so I, I sort of preliminary question that doesn't have an answer. I, I, I would ask uh, the, the two on the stage here with me. You know, is there a way to assess China's um, c- compliance with WTO obligations generally? But I don't know that there's an answer to that. So let me ask the, the, the follow up immediately, which is that there are a number of obligations uh, that have been cited, um, a, a number of you know policy areas and obligations that have been cited as, as problems for China. So forced technology transfer, uh, the use of state-owned enterprises, the use of subsidies. C- can you talk about some of the opportunities for for using these additional obligations to to achieve a broader uh, you know broader objective of, of Chinese compliance with WTO obligations? I mean, if it's true that China is not complying in all of these areas, um, you know, w- what are some opportunities for us to to sort of push them a bit, to to induce them to, to comply uh, better? So I'll put that to either one who wants to start. Jim looks like, yeah.
2: Well, well, first of all, it's important to understand what the WTO is and what it is not. Uh, the uh, WTO uh, is not some global leviathan that is empowered to intervene in uh, sovereign countries and uh, tell them what to do, or second guess what they're doing, or assess whether they're complying with their WTO obligations. The WTO is nothing more nor less than all the 164 members of the WTO, the countries and other customs territories that are the members. Acting together is something they choose to call the WTO. It's perfectly convenient for all of them politically back home to pretend that the WTO is somehow making them do something. Uh, But as Wang has just explained, in China and elsewhere in the world, oftentimes, uh, countries invite other countries to bring actions against them in the WTO so that they can change something domestically that they cannot change without outside pressure. This is one of the great pluses of WTO membership for China. Um, I've seen uh, reports of the Chinese uh, government doing all kinds of things uh, with the excuse that, well, we have to because we're a WTO member, even when those things didn't fall within the legal scope of the WTO treaty. Um, And that happens in other countries as well. So the answer to your question, assignment is that there's no WTO that's going to assess this. Uh, there are only two ways that assessment could be made. Uh, there's something called a trade policy review mechanism, where every few years, depending on the size of the country and its role in trade, it's a shorter or longer time. Uh, WTO members do assess the performance of uh, other members. And I think that process needs to be strengthened, to have much more second guessing, and to be broadened in a number of ways, to include other kinds of considerations uh, in trade. Um, The only other way is through dispute settlement. But here's the secret there. I can pick up a newspaper anywhere in the world, any day of the week, and I can find the WTO violation. But the only way that anyone's going to address that WTO violation in international uh, tribunal of law is if some WTO member decides to bring a case challenging it as inconsistent uh, with uh, WTO obligations. Uh, So whether there is a case or not depends entirely on the discretion of members themselves. There are some cases that should be brought that are never brought There's some cases that are brought that should never have been brought, but whether they're brought or not is entirely up to the individual members of the WTO. One last point. When they're brought, under the rules in the WTO treaty, no other country can stop that case from proceeding. They can delay it for 30 days, but that's it. And then once it gets to the jurists on the appellate body, where a legal issue is raised in a case, well, they have no discretion not to hear the appeal and they have no discretion under the current rules not to rule on a legal issue that's put before them. Uh, The appellate body of the WTO is definitely not the Supreme Court of the United States.
1: Um, Yeah, so I I fully fully agree with Jim about we need to continue to use the system, um, the the dispute settlement mechanism. Um, And in fact, some of the issues mentioned by Simon about state-owned enterprises and also forced technology transfer, there are some existing obligations that China undertook at the time of accession. So that we call the China Plus obligations. Now these obligations are set out currently in a very broad way and general way now people would argue that you may not have the technical details that we need to be um, to be to be able to use but the question is no one has used them so um, we need to test the capacity of these rules in the first place now this goes back to the point I made and also Jim said about we need the the, the the system to work for us to be able to use the rules effectively. If you don't have the system, um, someone would argue that, you know, you could actually um, goes into a vacuum where you, we would not actually see outcome of a case. And another, I think a more important issue here is that how would China react if the panel body is gone after 10th of December? Will China be same winning as it was before in complying with WTO rulings? There is a big question mark there. So I think that to maintain the effective dispute settlement mechanism will remain the most effective way in pushing China to comply and to change behavior. Now, and I also think that we need to increasingly use um, the existing rules. To test their um, capacity in, in, in dealing with China. Now, Jim mentioned about the trade policy review mechanism. Yes, that's one of the uh, the ways that, or important way to measure compliance. The question is um, whether countries actually do full disclosure. Um, in my reading of China's last trade policy review uh, report, they did not really mention anything about SOEs. So there is no disclosure, and again, you lose the evidence where you can actually have to assess whether it's compliance or not. So I think there is another transparency and notification issue there as well. Um, A final point I wanna make is that when you have used the rules, the existing rules, and you find it's inadequate, Then you can negotiate either um, through the multilateral uh, channel or using the the current ongoing uh, bilateral negotiation between US and China, trying to specify these rules um, in more detailed ways. Now, the bilateral negotiation, in my view, should not be a deviation from the multilateral trading system. It should be a uh, playing a role that contributes to more inclusive negotiation with all other members, which finally will promote the multilateral treaty negotiation.
0: So let me, let me follow up asking you uh, both to, to speculate a bit uh, about something. So the Trump administration, we know they've made clear they have great skepticism about WTO dispute settlement. They don't think it's effective. They don't want to bring these cases. I mean, they're still participating in ongoing cases, but, you know, they really haven't, Beyond China, they just, they haven't used the WTO dispute settlement mechanism very much. But my question is, so so, so we understand why they're not bringing these cases. But I, my question is, why do you think past U.S. administrations or why other governments who, who do value and believe in WTO dispute settlement, why haven't they pushed the boundaries on some of these cases? So, you know, we, we look at the China's succession protocol and say, there's some interesting language here on forced technology transfer on state-owned enterprises. Um, if you have concerns about things, why not test it out, you know? we're not the only ones to, to, to study China's you know, response to WTO dispute settlement ruling. I mean, others, even if they haven't written about it, recognize that China is, is doing a reasonable job of complying. Why not push the boundaries? Why aren't governments bringing these cases?
2: China became a member of the WTO in 2001. Uh, it was the uh, policy of uh, the Bush administration um, in the... Years thereafter, while President Bush was still in office, uh, generally not to bring cases against China. This was not for economic reasons. It was for geopolitical reasons. And there was the sense within the administration that uh, China needed to be allowed a a period of adjustment uh, before uh, it was challenged in WTO dispute settlement. This policy continued to some extent uh, under President Obama uh, during his first term. Uh, but by then there were increasing uh, political uh, consequences in the United States uh, of not taking a stronger position uh, on Chinese trade. So gradually the Obama administration became more of a user of dispute settlement and more of uh, a a user of the dispute settlement process against China. In my view, it was um, appropriate to give uh, China two or three years early on to adjust, but it was a mistake not thereafter to begin to bring cases against China uh, where there were perceived to be violations of China's obligations under the uh, WTO treaty and a succession agreement. I think by uh, being reluctant uh, and recalcitrant in uh, bringing cases then, um, both the Bush administration and the Obama administration helped create the situation that unfortunately exists now. Uh, There is pent up political and economic demand in the United States for actions against these perceived illegal trade practices by China. Uh, And there's a perception uh, uh, among a lot of people at the grassroots that their own government hasn't been aggressive enough in asserting American rights. Uh, To a great extent, I think, uh, this is true, uh, but I also uh, think that China and Chinese trade and trade in general are being blamed for a lot of our domestic difficulties that are not the fault of trade at all and they require domestic actions to make sure that the American people uh, are able to uh, compete at the highest levels. In a global marketplace that includes our own country.
0: Wei Wan, do you do you have do you have any sense of uh, the Australian government how how they think about this? I, I... Um,
1: I before I Get, respond to that, like, I actually want to add something to what okay. James said. I uh, obviously I'm not um, an insider in the United States, I couldn't comment on the the um, the, the government's uh, position on why not bring China, uh, bring case against China, but. Um, several aspects I want to add to what Jim has said. Uh, I think if you look at um, the, the, the protection of intellectual property rights, um, we know it has been a long standing issue, but in fact, there was only one case the U.S. brought against China, and, China, uh, and, and U.S. basically won on the legal points but lost in facts. Um, the reason behind it, um, one reason, from what I observed is that, maybe it's because the US never only relied on the multilateral approach. There, always, there, there is always a bilateral negotiation between the US and China on, on issues like intellectual property rights, protection and enforcement. So that's one, maybe one of the reasons. Um, then on, on, on forced technology transfer, there was actually a case brought by the US and EU um, those cases are still pending at the moment, I think. Um, but the, the question there is that in the Chinese law, they identify in these disputes, the law doesn't actually say very specifically and explicitly that we force technology transfer or mandates technology transfer. So there is no such a measure that you can actually challenge by the government to say that, look, um, you are in violation of your uh, WTO plus obligations, uh, which prohibit forced technology transfer. So, if you look at the specifics of the uh, of the uh, claims by the U.S. and EU, all of them are actually based on sufficient protection of intellectual property rights instead of forced technology transfer. So, uh, I think that's another reason. Because uh, I'll give you another example about SOEs now we don't have any use of the China-specific obligations in the accession protocol. There are broad uh, obligations that says that China can't use um, entities or any other administrative means to influence price, to affect competition, which is more general than the GATT obligation on state trading um, uh, enterprises. But why these rules haven't been used? Now, you could argue that it's because it lacks the specifics, there is no criteria, there is no guarantee that the government could win a case against China. But I think more importantly, because that it's really hard to identify a measure in China which actually says that we use this SOE for that specific purpose. Now, that is different from the perspective that there were cases that SOEs were involved. In the cases that the US brought against China. Now take publications, the audiovisual products case. All there uh, were SOEs because China designates trading rights to a very limited group of SOEs to do import and exports of cultural products. the fact that China lost the case and has to make changes to, to the restriction on trading rights means that the WTO rulings did have impact on China's use of SOEs. So I think those, those are the illustration of why we think that the dispute settlement mechanism is, is effective and why we, we think that uh, the WHO members should continue to use it.
2: Simon, may I have a yeah, word on no, this issue? Ahead. This goes to uh, uh, the the issue Professor Zhao raised earlier about transparency. Uh, There's an obligation uh, in in the GATT. Uh, Pardon me, I'm going to be a lawyer here. Uh, Article 10 of the GATT that uh, requires transparency in your laws, your regulations, your administrative uh, actions. This is a general obligation, Uh, but um, as he said there is a real question as to whether uh, China has fulfilled its uh, obligations of transparency in every respect as a member of the WTO. Uh, One of the actions with which I agree uh, with USTR under the Trump administration is, uh, its its efforts to uh, insist on more transparency uh, relating to Chinese subsidies um, this is not just a problem relating to china it 's a problem relating to many WTO members that have not complied with the obligation to uh, uh, notify uh, uh, the WTO uh, of all of its of their subsidies um, For those of you who uh, are are not litigators in WTO dispute settlement, um, I perhaps should explain what we mean when we're talking about a measure. Um, uh, For you to bring an action in uh, uh, the form of a complaint in the WTO against another country, uh, that other country must have taken a measure. A measure must be taken. What is a measure? There's no definition uh, in the WTO of a measure. In the NAFTA, there is. Generally, it's a law or a regulation or administrative practice. But uh, this is left intentionally undefined in the WTO because uh, WTO members appreciate that there is a, a breadth of ways that countries can take actions without leaving any official traces of having done so. Uh, Not every country has the Code of Federal Regulations. Not every country has the Federal Register. Not every country has the Federal Administrative Procedure Act. All of which combine to make the actions of our government in the United States transparent for everyone in the world every day. Uh, And this is a problem in China. Uh, So if you're a lawyer who wants to bring a case against China, you must first of all be able to show that China has actually taken some action uh, in the form of a measure. And this is hard to do. Uh, And oftentimes, uh, the Chinese government works in ways that are not reduced to writing. Uh, So this is a continuing difficulty in uh, US-Chinese trade relations, and also in the trade relations of other WTO members uh, with China. And it's one of those issues that, needs to be addressed uh, so that China could continue to benefit as it needs to benefit from its membership in the WTO and so that all other countries uh, can feel good about their continuing and increasing trade relations with China.
0: So I have two more broad issues that I want to raise and then we'll turn it over to the audience for questions. So the first broad issue is, If you listen to to President Trump talk about trade, uh, he's often critical of of past US trade negotiators. What a bad job they did. Um, So my question is, in your view, was China's WTO uh, accession protocol, the the, the deal it negotiated with the United States and other WTO members, was that fair to the United States? Was it fair to China at the time? Uh, Was it fair to both sides? Was it fair to all parties? And then related to that, does China's membership terms in the WTO need to be updated now to take into account China's rising income levels, and what would that renegotiation look like? So I'll put both of those questions out there to
2: both of you. And yeah. well, let me first of all say of uh, our president that uh, he he's promised uh, that he would conclude many many wonderful. Trade deals, the best in the history of the world. But the last time I looked, uh, he has yet to conclude and get approved even one trade deal. As a a former trade negotiator for this country, I felt obliged to point that out. Um, On your question specifically, uh, it's always easy to second guess any trade deal. Uh, no trade deal is going to be perfect in the eyes of anyone. In order to reach a deal uh, between two or more trade partners, you're going to have to have a situation in which no one gets everything they want. And everyone is going to have to give up something they would rather not give up. This is in the nature of trade negotiations. This does not mean that it's a bad deal. The NAFTA is a good example. I was involved in, uh, uh, when I was in the Congress and supporting the NAFTA and getting it approved, it was not perfect, no one thought it was perfect. I argued from the beginning that it should include uh, uh, environmental provisions that were later put in as a side deal and so on. Um, But I voted for it anyway. 20 years on, people are criticizing the NAFTA for its inadequacies. Well, the answer isn't to throw out the NAFTA. The answer is to improve it. Same is true of any relationship uh, among trading partners. If if we, 20 years on, are not satisfied with uh, the agreement that WTO members reached with China, then we need to talk, to the Chinese about whether uh, they're willing to do more. Uh, And of course, they would only be willing to do more if more is done in return. I I have not, I have yet to hear the Trump administration mention anything they might be willing uh, to concede to China as part of a uh, a trade agreement. a, A bilateral trade agreement between the United States and China Uh, in our current situation, raises all kinds of legal issues with respect to the WTO. If the Chinese take a measure that provides the U.S. soybean industry with a certain percentage of the U.S. market, well, how is that consistent with China's most favored nation obligation to Brazil and Canada and other producers of soybeans? That's just one issue. Um, My point is that China has legitimate grievances with us, especially concerning trade remedies. And if we really wanted to get the Chinese to address some of the structural issues that rightly concern us, we should be willing to make some concessions on all the discriminatory and I would say often illegal ways in which we applied trade remedies to imports from China, uh, but I have not heard the Trump administration mention that.
1: Yes, I again I fully with agree with Jim about the the reciprocity. Um, now the reciprocity now required for a bilateral deal from U.S. and China might be much, much higher than than it was at the time that China seek, uh, sought for the accession to the WTO. At the time, China had a very high economic need and political will to join the WTO, given all of the benefits that China can gain from it. So at the time, um, China gave up a lot of, um, uh, if you like, uh, sovereign rights by undertaking many extensive WTO plus obligations. I think, I think China, China's obligation the WTO remains the most onerous among all WTO members. Now, if you consider the examples about the, the broad obligations on SOEs, the broad obligations on forced technology transfer, the broad obligations on um, export restrictions, there has been no prohibition on export tax and many countries use export tax as a legitimate policy instrument. But China undertook to not use export tax for any reason. And um, this is one of the cases I disagree with the panel body ruling about it could be, China couldn't use any of the justifications for the use of export tax. Um, That doesn't make any uh, kind of legitimate sense in the way that all of the WHO members can use export tax. And it doesn't really um, go in line with the the rationale under WTO rules is that it could be justified by legitimate policy objectives. Now, there is none for China to use. And a consequence of that is that it pushed China to use export uh, restrictions, um, which could be justified for, for example, environmental reasons. So I think that doesn't really make too much sense to me, but it's a textual approach uh, for interpretation. I understand that. But my point is that China has undertaken a lot of broad obligations under WTO. I think uh, it's fair to the United States, um, but the government of WTO members needs to use them. If you don't use them uh, on the one hand, and then on the other hand you claim that there is the inadequate WTO rules to deal with China, then we have the rules, what, what else rules do you need? You haven't used them. Um, but to be more, a little bit more constructive about the, the existing obligations is one of the point I made just now that um, these rules might lack the specifics or details about um, the, 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 the current issues that China needs to, uh, that we to need to deal with in, in, in relation to China. So, those could be, as Jim mentioned, transparency issues, whether there is anything we can add um, to the existing obligations. Now, recognizing that there have been a, a long list of transparency obligations, W2 plus, W2 uh, obligations on China already, but whether there is anything more we can do about it. Uh, another thing is about whether w- there is anything more we can do about SOE's activities instead of just having a very broad obligation. So those are the things could be uh, thought about in the ongoing bilateral negotiations. So I still think that that is very very important. And um, the the point about that the bilateral negotiation would lead to uh, potential violation of WTO rules. Um, my my view is that China has been a In public, they they published a white paper last year to say that China will defend the multilateral training system in many, many cases as well afterwards. Um, So my take on this is that it will be hard to force China to take a rule, uh, to take an obligation um, that will be explicitly violating the WTO rules. So that will create a a lot of difficulties and uncertainties in the bilateral negotiation. My, My view on this is that the bilateral negotiation needs to be taken in the way that complies with the multilateral trading system uh, rules uh, but also be constructive to uh, the multilateral negotiation
0: let me build on something uh, jim said you know you, you you talked about how if there's going to be a, a renegotiation a new you know deal uh, china's participation in the wto Um, China's got to get something in return. So, yes, we can talk about the new things that China has to give, but, you know, the other other side, the United States, other countries need to give something else. The United States, you said, could could give something on trade remedies, and obviously I I agree with you on that. Um, So I want to sort of take that and segue into these U.S.-China trade talks that have been going on for a while. Um, In that context... I don't hear much about what the United States might give. And that doesn't mean that behind the scenes, the United States isn't interested in offering anything. I just haven't heard about it. Um, and, and so when, I, when I, because I haven't heard about it, I, you know, I have doubts about, about the prospects here. And so I just wanted to put to, to both of you, you know, how do you see that bilateral negotiation going right now? And what do you think the prospects are uh, for any sort of agreement, a, a phase one deal, a comprehensive deal, anything?
2: Well, so far as I can... Tell the uh, United States' position in the current bilateral trade talks uh, with China is, in the Latin phrase, my way or the highway. Um, it's take it or leave it. Uh, it's give us a dispute settlement um, system as part of this deal in which we can judge you, but you can't judge us. Uh, It's to coerce the Chinese into violating their uh, WTO obligations to other WTO members uh, by granting uh, the United States certain pieces of the Chinese market. These uh, kinds of considerations raise more issues than they resolve. Um, There are some legitimate uh, concerns on the U.S. negotiating List. Technology transfer, ownership uh, restrictions, uh, intellectual property, to be sure, uh, a lot of uh, the domestic content requirements and subsidies that we see in um, whatever the Chinese are now calling their uh, uh, strategic initiative for 2025. Um, these things rightly concern not only the United States, but uh, Uh, other members of the WTO. I don't see any likelihood that any of these issues are going to be resolved in a way that will remotely satisfy the United States unless the Chinese get something in return. Uh, I don't see any willingness whatsoever in this administration to um, concede even one inch on trade remedies. Um, Perhaps, Uh, there's something that could be done on investment. Uh, We badly need a bilateral investment treaty between the United States and China, but we don't seem to be in the process of negotiating one. That's lapsed since the Obama administration. Um, There are other examples of what we might do. I I think we're going to increasingly see uh, the world having to grapple more with tax issues. The OECD has been a forum for that, but most uh, WTO members are not members of the OECD. How do we deal with that issue? The digital tax in France, you know, is now on the front lines, but other countries are going to do those kinds of things. And uh, China and the United States are at odds on some issues relating to digital trade. Um, I just don't see that in the end, um, whatever uh, the United States, Uh, brings home from China in the form of a deal uh, is going at all to be the kind of deal that it will be described as being by our president. He will say it's the best trade deal ever, ever, but I don't see that it's going to accomplish that much. Uh, The first thing we should do is simply uh, eliminate all these tariffs on both sides uh, that have been uh, raised during this trade conflict. That should be a given, Um, but based on what I'm reading, the United States isn't willing even to do that. I don't see how they can bring China to an agreement on anything that will truly be meaningful, much less anything that might have been as positive as could have now resulted from a thoughtful, coordinated, uh, multiple complainant uh, case that could have been brought against China and the WTO for a lot of these same perceived uh, violations.
1: Um, yeah, I think <laughs> what is lacking at the moment is um, the Chinese government or the public doesn't really know what the U- U.S. government really wants. Uh, we know broadly what they want. They want to deal with the issues about forced technology transfer, SOEs, uh, non-market economy uh, system, those kind of stuff. But what specifically do you want? Um, you can't just tell the Chinese government that you have to change your economic model fundamentally. You can't just ask that um, you can't use SOEs for any of these purposes. It's not going to happen. So it, it's not going to happen if it's too intrusive. Um, and it needs to be a compromise. And as Jim said, that there needs to be a compromise to the point where the China can actually offer on the table, and the U.S. uh, will need to offer something as well in return. Um, Now, one example is forced technology transfer. I think the the Chinese government has received a lot of pressure from the U.S. government, and that is one of the reasons that China um, facilitated the the passage of the uh, new foreign investment law. And in the new foreign investment law, the Chinese government basically made it very clear that no levels of administrative actions um, should force or mandate technology transfer. So I think, I think you take that as an example is the China's response to what the US want broadly. But more specifically, um, I think the demands needs to be uh, set out more, um, in a clear way for the parties to be able to even start negotiate. Um, otherwise, um, they're just guessing what we can offer and what you need. Um, and there needs to be a kind of a compromised position in the middle um, and for both governments uh, to negotiate i think and that that, that will require strong political will, uh, which I think is lacking at the moment
0: so I, I have one last question and i 'll stop hogging the microphone and open it up to uh, the audience um, and this may be more for for Jim, but Wei Wan, you can you can say something too if you have something to say so. Uh, President Trump, as we know, under our Constitution, he has either one year or five years left in office, and then we get some other administration. And so my question is, um, what will, uh, will a new U.S. administration be likely to, to turn more to the WTO um, as redress against uh, you know, China's perceived violations? Will they continue uh, with the Section 301 approach? And what, what should a new administration's trade policy with regard to China look like in general
2: terms? Well, assuming that new administration is a democratic administration, um, the answer I would give is in a paper I'm writing now for Cato that will appear sometime in the spring. Can you give us a spoiler or? Uh, uh, I I would ask my fellow Democrats to uh, uh, look at the polling uh, on trade. If they do, they'll find that uh, the vast majority of Democrats are very much in favor of lowering barriers to trade. Uh, You wouldn't know that uh, from what we're hearing from uh, Democrats uh, in the Congress or on the campaign trail in the uh, presidential election. Uh, In the past, uh, multilateralism, in which I devoutly believe, has been uh, popular in different ways and in different respects for Republicans and Democrats. Um, For some time uh, in the past couple of decades, on the Republican side, multilateralism was popular in trade, but not quite so popular outside of trade. During that same period, uh, in the time uh, since I served in and and decided to leave the Congress, uh, Democrats have generally been for multilateralism and everything except trade. And I've never quite understood why trade has been the exception. So I wouldn't expect uh, a new democratic president to uh, remedy all of uh, the, ill-considered trade actions of the Trump administration. Um, I fear that um, too much has happened, uh, and, and that too much of what has been the historic uh, and essential bipartisan support for the multilateral trading system has been eroded. Um, I'm encouraging everyone I see to support multilateralism here and throughout the world. Uh, and to understand why it's important in trade. Uh, I think you will see uh, a Democratic administration be more inclined to work within the WTO, but the same kinds of uh, political considerations that are driving the Trump administration to where it is now also affect Democrats. Much of this is about trade remedies, Why? Because the ability to apply trade remedies uh, with a great deal of legal latitude is important in certain states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. Some of these states are the states on which the outcome of the next presidential election and probably the control of the Congress will turn. Uh, This is important to Democrats and Republicans alike. This is why there has been a bipartisan uh, view of the United States dating back uh, to the beginning of the WTO that the United States will not negotiate multilaterally on any changes in its anti-dumping rules. This is not going to change. Um, And unless and until we grapple with this central issue and understand that We're sacrificing the future of the country through the opportunity cost of investing so much political capital uh, in uh, places and in firms that really have no economic future. One point here, 75% of the American economy is services, 90% of the economy of my home state of Florida is services. Since the establishment of the WTO and the conclusion of the General Agreement on Trade and Services in 1994, 1995, how much have we accomplished in reducing barriers worldwide further to our trade and services, in which we have a vast comparative advantage in virtually every sector? The answer is none. Why? Because we've been unwilling to concede on some of these other issues that are motivated solely by a misguided protectionist. Did you want to add
0: that, okay. So let's uh, open it up to questions now. So uh, we have a microphone coming around. So if you have a question, raise your hand, uh, and wait for the microphone so that uh, people watching online can hear it. Uh, do we have any takers, anyone? Uh, have anything that they want to ask about these issues related to that we've talked about, or any other issues related to to China and the WTO? I'm going to turn to my colleague Juan uh, uh, Zhu right in the front. Uh, Juan Zhu at Cato Institute. Um,
3: my question is for. My questions for um, Professor Zhou. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, you putting in the effort to putting out all details about each case each case rulings and China's actions and inactions afterwards. So with regard to China's inactions in some cases, I understand you mentioned it's very few right, examples. Um, we often hear people say that China has very unique political and economic system do you see China's system presents any specific challenges in relation to implementing WTO rulings? Um, and then the second question is for both of you. Uh, that You mentioned um, there are maybe some needs to update uh, the trade terms with China, um, but is uh, the bilateral approach or multilateral approach more effective? How, how, how can we get there? Uh, Jim, you mentioned You described the challenges in the bilateral trade negotiations between the U.S. and China, but if we go to the multilateral route, we also see, you know, negotiations at WTO are stalling. Uh, So, how do we solve that? Thank you.
1: Um, Thanks for your question. Um, I think, um, if anything, the political system in China, the government, how the government. is working on daily affairs is actually prone to um, implementation instead of against the implementation. Because it's, it's really that the, the government needs to decide whether they want to implement or not. Now, there has been cases where um, there was strong political resistance coming from businesses uh, or from other concerns, like for example, in the publications and audiovisual products where the Chinese government is really concerned about the censorship system. Um, in those cases, you can see a lot of resistance from other uh, government departments which have different interests and priorities, which could be uh, a, a barrier to implementation. But even in that case, given the high political stake and the sensitive sector there, um, China complied. So I think that um, if the government has the willingness to com- comply, um, and they will comply, and they can make that happen. Now, it's a matter of time, and sometimes they could be delayed, like in the audiovisual products case. The, the implementation was delayed a bit. Uh, just because that involved high stake and also coordination between different uh, government departments. But from my understanding, I talked to some of the officials uh, at the time, was that they, when they received the WTO rulings, they actually organized the discussions uh, among all the government departments, departments involved or might need to be involved in the conversation to say how we implement so that's a very good and positive starting point to show that the government has the willingness to com- comply. So um, the only challenge, I don't think it's coming from the government, within the government, It's actually from the outside, as I mentioned just now. If we don't have the effective WTO dispute settlement mechanism, then whether the Chinese government will maintain the same willingness to comply with the WTO rulings. Then think about that, if, only the panel left and then that effectively gives every mem- WTO member the right to reject um, the, the panel rulings, then why China will maintain the same willingness to comply? So th- th- those kind of things I think will uh, negatively impact on the effectiveness of the dispute center mechanism on China.
2: Well, the current crisis with the appellate body is not our topic today, so I won't dwell on that, except to echo what he just said. Um, um, The United States appears to be bent on um, uh, reshaping the WTO dispute settlement system into what used to be the GATT system, uh, creating uh, a situation in which the right to appeal to the appellate body that is found in the WTO treaty will be denied. Uh, Therefore, uh, as Professor Zhao just pointed out, uh, if a country loses before a WTO panel, it can then file a notice of appeal into the void. And there's no way the dispute settlement body can adopt a panel report. So in effect, you're blocking it as you did under the the GATT. Well, the United States may want the ability to do this, but um, as he pointed out, other countries are going to have the same ability, we'll be back to the GATT and we'll soon be reminded why it was the United States that uh, uh, worked so hard uh, above all others uh, to create a binding dispute settlement system in the first place. Um, How should we negotiate uh, with China? As I've already said, uh, I think on investment we should be focusing on uh, a bilateral investment Treaty that needs to be back on the agenda and, and and moving up on the agenda. In my view, we very much need a multilateral framework on investment, but um, we're a decade or maybe two uh, from having one. Uh, so we shouldn't let these issues be caught up in that effort. Uh, if China reaches a deal with the United States on certain Uh, uh, investment rules, then I think we'll see those rules apply generally um, just de facto. On the other trade issues, uh, uh, you're right. WTO members have not been able to negotiate on anything multilaterally. Well, that needs to change. Um, There's a lot of focus now on dispute settlement. The failure has not been the dispute settlement system. It's the best dispute settlement system in the history of the world. Has its failings, but it's the best we've ever had. Uh, The failure has been in negotiations. We have to learn how to negotiate again. We have to learn what give and take is about. We have to remind ourselves of the benefits of multilateral trade agreements in terms of multiplying how we lower barriers to trade. We need to bring more issues into the discussion uh, that haven't been on the agenda. We've got to start at digital trade. Uh, there are other issues as well, competition, policy, a lot of environmental considerations, much more. Um, we could be doing this other than multilaterally uh, on a transitional basis. We could be uh, trying plurilateral agreements, agreements among some but not all WTO members, for those who aren't familiar with that jargon. Uh, this is permissible under the WTO treaty. We have a number of them now, the information technology agreement, others. Uh, We should get China to join the government procurement agreement. That's what, 20, 25, 30% of the Chinese economy, government purchases. Uh, That's really not on our agenda now. And we should be looking at other kinds of plurilateral approaches that might be uh, ways in which we could deal with the nuanced Chinese Uh, aspects of state-owned enterprises uh, and uh, some of these other issues that bump up against uh, next-generation technologies. This is what should be in the forefront of our negotiations, but the current approach of the Trump administration over the course of nearly two years now has not gotten us even remotely close to addressing those issues, much less resolving them.
1: Yeah, so just... Follow up on what Jim has said. I think both of us have talked about the bilateral negotiations a bit. Um, I think the starting point is that in reality, the confrontational approach and isolation approach through unilateral tariffs have been uh, counterproductive. That's just the reality. It hasn't actually pushed China to do anything. Now, if we're comparing that with the effectiveness of the dispute settlement mechanism, Uh, or even in the past, the the continuing bilateral negotiation between US and China on the issues. Those mechanisms have been more effective. So um, I think the the whole unilateral approach has gone into a very wrong direction if if we are to deal with China. Um, The bilateral negotiation, if if we use the China's accession uh, negotiation as an example, That basically shows us that the bilateral negotiation between US and China could be a breakthrough into the multilateral uh, negotiation. So I think, I mean, frankly, we have different issues and and, and new issues now, but um, back at the time of the accession negotiation, there were more complex issues and more issues there. So I don't think that it's impossible for the US and China to reach a bilateral deal, which will be uh, Contributing to the multilateral negotiation, I, I think I think the challenges could be overcome if there is a good faith negotiation. Uh,
0: I think we have time for one quick question, and then we'll we'll go to lunch. So we'll take the question from this gentleman here, and then we'll we'll move upstairs, and uh, we'll be available to talk more of that. But go ahead,
2: uh, David Rossman, uh, DOD retired. Uh, Two part question. Uh, I don't understand what the enforcement mechanisms are. You talked about appeals and so forth, and somebody loses the appeal, and then so what? What, what happens then? And then the other thing is, what is the relationship to the WTO to the uh, TPP? Uh, first of all, the enforcement mechanism is the last resort of economic sanctions, uh, which can be authorized by the WTO if uh, a country that loses Uh, a case, in an exercise of its national sovereignty, chooses not to comply with an adverse WTO ruling. Uh, uh, An example of this is what just happened with respect to uh, the United States and the European Union in the ongoing dispute over subsidies for Airbus. The European Union was judged not to have complied with the ruling. The United States has now been authorized to uh, apply sanctions uh, to the measure of the amount of damages that an arbitrator has uh, decided the United States has suffered. That's $3.5 billion annually. And these uh, sanctions take the form of withdrawal of previously granted trade concessions in other areas of trade. this is a, has been a very effective last resort. Um, the uh, WTO is so controversial in part uh, uh, in its dispute settlement system because it's the only system in the world and in the history of the world that has mandatory jurisdiction and is backed by the real teeth of enforcement powers. As to the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is independent of the WTO, it's in the nature of uh, a free trade agreement that is permitted under WTO rules as an exception to what would otherwise be uh, the general obligation to provide most favored nation treatment to all other members of the WTO. Here we've seen uh, uh, 11 now, since the United States withdrew, countries conclude an agreement that provides for WTO plus obligations. And um, their legal excuse for doing this is that they say it's a free trade agreement that fits the definition of a free trade agreement under Article 24 of the GATT, and no one has challenged that. I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal a decade ago uh, when the TPP was first suggested, uh, in which I suggested that it should have been negotiated within the WTO as a plurilateral agreement. That said, I'm a very strong uh, supporter uh, of uh, what is now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, um, The 11 other countries have proceeded without us.
0: Uh, so we are now going to adjourn up to the second floor for lunch, and feel free to, to uh, bring us some, some more questions during lunch. So let me just say thanks to the speakers. Uh, thanks to Huei Wan for coming all the way from Australia. Thanks to Jim for giving up the sunny weather of Florida. And I appreciate <laughs> both of your comments.
2: My pleasure.